Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Emily Contois about her book, Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture, published November 2020 by University of North Carolina Press. Emily Contois is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Tulsa, Her research explores food, the body, health, and identities in contemporary U.S. media and popular culture. Emily, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me on the podcast, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you on both. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, your journey to academic food studies is an interesting one, and you described this a little bit in the preface to the new book. So will you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? How did you come to food studies and to this particular intersection of gender and food media? Sure. So my undergraduate work was in letters, history, literature and philosophy, an ancient language and a modern language. So you had lots of freedom to pursue the topics that interested you. So food studies didn't exist at the University of Oklahoma when I was there. Um, But I was able to work with Julia Earhart, who worked on food culture, food ways. Um, And so I was able to do a thesis looking at the language of the dieting industry, looking at how it used almost a religious sort of language and framing as it thought about good and bad bodies, cycles of uh, temptation and trying to be virtuous. Um, And so I started there uh, and I loved writing papers. I loved research, but I didn't talk to enough people before I figured out what I should do for graduate school. And so I was afraid that I couldn't make a difference in the world if that was all I was doing. And so public health really spoke to me. Um, So I went to Berkeley, studied public health nutrition, went into worksite wellness in part because I was so inspired by workplace culture as a part of sort of the American identity, um, that we work very hard, even how we think about leisure is in many ways um, sort of uh, in relationship to how we think about work and productivity and um, creating better selves of ourselves. Um, but I wasn't really cut out for being in a cubicle. I missed interdisciplinary thought. I missed writing with all of the words that are available to us. And I missed teaching. I'd gotten to teach um, Introduction to Nutrition Science oh, six times, back to back to back when I was at Berkeley. I knew I loved teaching and I really missed that. So I went back to school, um, leaving what remains to be the most secure, you know, best salaried, great benefited job I ever had, uh, which is maybe silly. Um, But I went to Boston University to study in the gastronomy program that Julia Child and Jacques Pepin founded. And it was an amazing two years where I went to school part time, continued to work in worksite wellness, um, and really got to be trained by some of the most amazing folks in food studies like Warren 
Velasco and Carol Cunahan um, to really think deeply about food as this central analytic for understanding who we are, how we relate to our bodies. Um, and so while I was there, I built on that initial sort of honors thesis from when I was really young thinking about dieting to focus on men and masculinities. And so I thought that's what I would expand into a book-length project as my dissertation. But once I started doing my field reading, I realized there was so much more I wanted to do to think about uh, gender identity and how it intersects with all other categories of our identities through food in a much more complex way than just sort of commercial dieting. And so that's where it expanded um, when I was in my PhD at Brown University um, in American Studies, which really gave me a a fantastic interdisciplinary place to really situate food um, within how we study consumer culture, identity, economics, and politics. That was the most concise answer I could have imagined. Well done. <laughs> in, the, in the preface of the book and on your website, both, you make clear that you really value public writing alongside this more traditional academic writing. And I imagine that has something to do with that changing the world uh, piece that kind of got you started. And you describe it in the book as high stakes writing. So before we get into the book itself, uh, can you talk a little bit more about this public facing writing? What kind of writing do you do? And what do you think are those high stakes? Yeah, I view the work that I do in the classroom with my students and in all of my writing as a part of a, a social justice aim um, that I don't think my work should be locked up in the ivory tower or only available behind a paywall or written in jargon that's not accessible to most readers. Um, I thought that I was a pretty competent public writer. Um, you know, when I started revising this book um, and my amazing editor, Mark Simpson Voss at UNC, like really pushed me, right? Like, how do you really strip away every piece of jargon that you don't need? How do you reach for the words that communicate what you really want to say um, without making this um, dense, without giving it that one layer of abstraction? Like, how can you keep it in a place where, you know, smart everyday readers like my mom, right? Like, that's part of the audience I really wanted to capture, um, in addition to, you know, students and my academic peers, um, that I really wanted to attempt to write a book that mattered, that would be read, and that would speak to people. And part of that came from I had some unusual opportunities as a grad student to present a couple of times um, at a women's wellness conference with a really interesting community of women. And to bring, you know, straight up my research, right, the way I would kind of present it at an academic conference. And they were just so excited and, you know, welcomed these ideas. And so it made me really think critically about who our audiences are and can be for the work that we do. Um, and I don't know how you feel either. Like the academy doesn't really teach us how to do that writing um, in, you know, to the extent that we're taught how to write dissertations. Um, we're not really really taught to be beautiful writers who care about prose and sentences. And um, so it was something I worked really hard on. I did. I rewrote almost every single sentence in this book. I, I hope that I've come close, um, but it was one of the most important things to me um, with this book. And then in my broader sort of um, orientation as, as an academic, um, that I talk a lot about being a public scholar and being a scholar in public so that we can be as transparent and 
and honest and critical and joyful about what it means to be a professor, um, that this was the life I wanted. I am so grateful that it's a life I get to lead. Um, and I recognize that we're in a moment where there's a lot of misunderstanding about higher education, about its purpose. Um, and so I hope that in being as transparent, open, honest, accessible as I can, that I can be a part of ensuring that we are the institution we can and should be in the future. Wow, what a lofty set of goals. I, I totally agree. I think we as academics, a lot of us wish we could more easily move between these worlds of sort of popular audience writing and academic writing. Uh, what are some strategies that you've sort of developed to bridge those audiences? Is it looking for the right venues or is it really that sentence prose level? I think it's both. And I think part of it is like following your heart and your interests and what you actually want to write about. I remember there was this Twitter thread, you know, where people, someone said, you know, if you could write a book about anything, right, to academics, what would you write about? And almost everyone wanted to write on some like pop culture concept, right? Like that's what they wanted to be writing. And they're writing these other books. And so I remember piping up saying, well, there are those of us who are just actually writing the books we genuinely want to be writing. So I think that's one thing, right? Um, being able um, to follow what genuinely interests you, regardless of how it will be viewed by some of the more traditional folks in the academy. Um, if we want this place to survive, we're going to have to think differently. Um, and so I think showing folks how our everyday lives, our popular media, etc., are meaningful and matter is one way that we can contribute to that. Um, and one other thing was to write for lots of different kinds of publications and lots of different audiences, even when I was a graduate student. Um, I wrote, you know, for Nursing Clio, you know, this really great peer-reviewed history of medicine blog. Um, I wrote for the food section in the Providence Journal newspaper. Um, I wrote for a uh, Zester Daily, you know, was this, you know, food website um, at the same time that I was writing peer-reviewed articles, um, at the same time that I was writing blog posts, and the same time I was developing sort of a voice and presence on Instagram and writing the dissertation and the book. So I think writing as much as you can in as many different ways as you can is part of that. And then for the book, like having a good editor um, who pushes you hard on that sentence level, that um, all of those have been really meaningful and helpful to me. So where did the idea for diners, dudes, and diets start? Ah, so I shared the lineage, right, of sort of that interest in like gender and dieting and bodies and health and American identity, like that stretched all the way back, um, you know, to my undergraduate studies, and it just kept building. Um, and then I was interested to sort of expand it beyond just dieting to thinking about food um, and cooking as well. And so in thinking about how cooking is represented and communicated in cookbooks and on food television, and then, you know, specific food products. And so I, you know, got into that. You could see that there was something interesting happening um, with masculinity in particular. Um, and at first I thought, like a lot of other scholars, right, that what I was seeing was just this reinforcement of hegemonic masculinity, right, this sort of stereotypical standard um, set of understandings of, you know, quote unquote, a real man at a particular time in a particular place, you know, building from Connell's amazing foundational work. 
But as I kept working with the case studies that I had, I realized that there was actually like a slightly different sort of hybrid masculinity, a different discourse going on. And so that's how I got to the dude um, as a sort of specific uh, form of masculinity. And so I define him, you know, as the slacker, right? He celebrates the average or the below average guy um, in part because he emerges and expands in the Great Recession era. So the you know qualifications and expectations of masculinity are always an ideal out of reach, right? And how they shape our lives and particularly men's lives. But during the moment of the recession, right, like actual breadwinning, actual you know being able to own a home, you know those things were really and truly um, different um, and much further out of reach. And so the dude further expands under those conditions as an identity. And so in thinking about him um, in how he shapes ideas about masculinity as well as race, right? That the dude um, has this inherent whiteness, this investment in holding up whiteness um, as a part of um, its overall investment um, in the power and authority of white masculinity, um, particularly, right, of a, a class status that's stable. Um, and so... I was interested in looking at how the food, media, and marketing industries manipulated this idea of masculinity, manipulated the dude, in order to sell specific food-related figures and phenomena that in our culture tend to be perceived as feminine. So it's one thing to sell, you know, workout supplements, right? Like we see those marketed in distinctly gendered ways, right? Very binary, very over the top masculine and feminine ways, depending upon who they're being targeted to. But what I was interested in is like, what do they do when they're tackling what marketers call gender contamination? This idea that consumers resist brand gender bending, particularly that men will resist buying products that are viewed as feminine and feminizing. So I looked at how the dude provided a strategy for industries to combat um, this idea of gender contamination, to get men to buy cookbooks and to cook at home, um, to watch food television, right? How do you bring more men to the primetime audience? And so looking at Guy Fieri as one way that the net Food Network in particular um, endeavored to do that with this dude chef. Um, for foods, I'm really interested in diet soda and yogurt. So I look at four different brands in those food categories and then conclude the book um, with dieting. You can really see how all of the conventions that are built in these other chapters really coalesce and collide and how um, dieting encapsulates ideas about food and flavor, appetite, bodies, health, um, control, restraint, ideals, aspiration, right? It's all there. Um, so that's sort of the arc of the book um, and how I came to do more than just dieting in thinking about this specific uh, gender discourse of the dude. Um, and then the title, right? <laughs> like is a little bit of a riff um, on Fieri's um, Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. I watched dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes of the show. And so um, it took me like six months to come up with a title for the book. I really liked what I'd had. Um, for the dissertation, which which was the, the dudification of diet, Helen Rosner years ago had you know said dudification and like that process of like creating the dude of creating dude foods of creating dude food media really appealed to me, and that I had to come up with something different for the book, and so diners, dudes, and diets is, is where I landed. That's great. 
The key word with the dude to me seems to be ambivalence, right? There's these contradictions and logical paradoxes at work in the dude. So talk a little bit about some of those. Yeah, so he's hugely ambivalent in that he can't ever show invested interest. The idea is to be so cool, so distant, so disengaged that even if you do in, you do participate in uh, eating particular foods or you know using Weight Watchers online um, or cooking from a cookbook, that it's at such a in such a non-committal way and at such a distance that it doesn't impinge upon um, masculine identity or sort of the authority um, of you know patriarchy itself. So there's that ambivalence in the whole approach to connecting with food. Um, Another um, sort of specific concept that I work with is the idea of ambivalent masculine body discipline, um, which comes into play with particular foods and with dieting as well, Um, which I look at the the expectations of hegemonic masculinity when you layer them over the body and ideas about ideal male bodies, right? Or for very muscular bodies, right? Bodies that are strong and powerful and work hard hard, um, you know, and are, are hugely muscular when we think about, you know, what ideals look like. And yet at the same time, these expectations for masculinity sort of eschew all of these health behaviors as feminizing. So to worry about if you're getting enough, um, you know, vegetables in your diet or, you know, about your triglycerides or, um, you know, to, to think about your body as vulnerable and something that you should take care of is... Um, antagonistic to those most hegemonic sort of stereotypical standards of what it means to be a man. And so we see this playing out right now outside of the food world with the debates about getting men to wear masks um, during the pandemic. Um, And so it's the same sort of set of norms, um, you know, that your, that real men take risks and they're impervious and they don't have to look after themselves, right? They're like masculinity is just inherent and powerful on its own. And so in ambivalent masculine body discipline, I'm looking at this irreconcilable tension between how you're expected to be a man and then how you're supposed to look after your body, um, to care about health, to have a long life, um, to be able to deal with illness, for example. And so looking at how things like men's diet books or even you know, Men's Health Magazine, um, how they uh, sort of navigate that ongoing ambivalence and contradiction um, is one of these like slippery, interesting spaces where the dude takes us to be able to think about men and consumption bodies. And yeah, and I think you've already alluded to this a little bit, but maybe you could talk about it a little bit more, is how the dude really seems to be breaking gender stereotypes. Uh, but in the end, it really only serves to reinforce that binary gender and hegemonic masculinity. So talk a little bit more about how that works. Exactly. So he's resistant to some aspects of hegemonic masculinity. And so in that way, the dude um, has some sort of flexibility for some men to be able to perform who they are. But that's typically the men who already have the most power in society, right? Men who are white, cisgender, heterosexual, affluent, able-bodied, etc. And so the dude remains fully complicit in the power structures um, that hegemonic masculinity and then patriarchy overall.
all um, seek to uphold. Um, and so in uh, as a more specific example, right, I look at sort of the phenomenon of the dad bod, which became this, you know, interesting media phenomenon in 2015, and then has sort of stuck around with us ever since. Um, this idea of a male body type that is um, still muscular, still works out sometimes, um, but it carries a little extra weight, right? There's a little bit of a belly or something. And so it's resisting these unreasonable, you know, ideal body standards for men at the same time that there is still no mom bod, right? For women who actually make babies, right? And should gain some weight and, you know, sometimes struggle to be able to lose it for real reasons. Um, It does nothing to dismantle diet culture. Um, It does nothing um, to, you know, critique wellness. Um, And at the same time, right, that it still upholds, you know, other ideas of, you know, sort of the whiteness and the, the celebrity, the white celebrity who was so often featured as, you know, the person with the dad bod in how uh, news coverage, for example, would cover this phenomenon. So the dad bod certainly resists in some ways. It might have elements of body positivity um, in how we think about ourselves and our bodies, particularly for men, Um, but it still remains complicit in all of those existing structures. It doesn't really dismantle anything. And I think what the dude shows from a food media and marketing perspective is that it's still so binary and so heteronormative um, that these strategies that have been used for decades to be able to market to men and women like are really limited. Like we really have to be able to expand how we talk to audiences and think about food in particular. Yeah, and on that note, um, each chapter examines a different product or media campaign. So a lot of your focus is on the advertising, the marketing, the um, all of the, I was surprised by all of the many ways that, that people are engaging with a brand, not just, uh, ads, but packaging and these digital experiences and all kinds of games, um, that are trying to engage this dude person. Uh, so why do you think advertising and marketing, what do you think we can learn from looking at that side of the food system? So for me, I study advertising uh, because it's the language of our consumer culture. And so if you really want to be able to unpack these ideas about consumption, not just with food, but this broader culture, like advertising is our way in. I also think advertising, kind of like public health, right, are industries that are full, for the most part, of these like genuinely altruistic, interesting, invested people um, who then sometimes provide these really interesting texts, right, for those of us who are cultural critics um, of, you know, where things go wrong and where we'd like to see things get better. And so advertising as a field, marketing as a field, right, that's a bit broader than advertising, um, is actually thinking critically about, you know, what they call corporate social responsibility, um, about brands being able to, you know, reconceive of what identities are possible and how we should, um, you know, reimagine these pathways for who we can be and how we can relate to one another. So even as we're in this moment, I mean, we've always been in a moment where people hated advertising, right, and wanted to be able to get away from it and, you know, be able to zip through it and not have it be a part of their lives, like with, you know, sponsored content and all of these additional ways that advertising is becoming just part and parcel um, with media and with sort of culture itself. I think advertising is a really meaningful text and that the advertising industry um, 
could be a worthy partner um, in thinking through how this goes. So I did write the conclusion in a way that I hope opens a door um, to be able to do some of that collaborative work. I think there is some hope there. Um, and so I think I had another idea, but it left me. But I will leave you with that. <laughs> well, the first chapter, it, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I thought go. of it. I thought of it. Um, so the other piece that I'm interested in with consumer culture um, is this idea of Americans as consumer mm-hmm. citizens, right? That's so much of this idea of who we are as Americans, as citizens, as participants in a consumer culture, in a capitalist society, um, that who, what we buy, where we spend our dollars um, has been elevated, right, to this almost ridiculous level, you know, equivalent with, you know, protest and voting and actually being civically involved. And so thinking about how advertising consumer culture um, operates at this level of who we are as citizens, um, you know, drawing, you know, from amazing work, thinking about the 1940s and 1960s, um, that we're in a, a new and different moment to think about that alongside the way that scholars like Charlotte Bultikoff and Shuli Guthman have also written about ideas of citizenship, right? Neoliberal citizenship um, within a very healthist frame. And so thinking about the consumer citizen across bodies, health, medical systems, a quote quote, obesity epidemic, um, notions of who we are as citizens, how we participate in a capitalist consumer society, and then how is advertising our language into that. So that's why I spent so much time thinking about ad campaigns, um, the agencies who created them, um, and in what the pathway forward could be. Yes, excellent. Worth the wait. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the first chapter examines cookbooks for men, and that's my particular area of interest as well, as you know. Uh, so first, what is dude food, and how do these cookbooks address that figure of the dude as a home cook? Yes. So I define dude food as comfort food with an edge of competitive destruction. And so <laughs> we can all think of comfort foods, right? So mac and cheese would be an example, right? So a dude food version of mac and cheese is also going to have, you know, a pound of bacon and a ton of jalapenos and 12 different cheeses. Um, and I don't even know what else, right? Added on top. Um, and so it's always like exaggerated in a lot of different ways. And it's portion size, um, in its sort of nutritional composition, it's purposefully going to break all of those food rules in the way that the dude, right, is resisting and playful and ironic and just not following the rules. Um, But there's also, you know, really interesting aspects of it with class, um, that it's uh, purposefully resisting ideas of pretension or elitism, um, that dude food, um, even when served in, you know, that like there are burgers, for example, right, on so many wonderful, you know, expensive restaurant menus. Um, But the idea of the burger being elevated, um, that dude food can operate in all of these different spaces, but at its heart, um, that it is against sort of pretension and elitism. It has a populist sort of ethos to it. Um, And then in thinking about how the dude has this inherent whiteness, um, dude food has that as well, right? When we look at sort of typical comfort foods in American culture, um, a lot of them are coming, um, which relates to your book as well, I think, right? To um, African-American cuisine and to Black culture. 
culture. And so to have those sort of appropriated under this lens of dude food, um, that that is part and parcel of the identity of the dude itself and sort of its history of where it comes from and then how it comes to be coded as white sort of from the 60s, 70s onward. Um, and so that's this construction of dude food, right? That sure, it's meat heavy, but it's also sort of exaggerated in all of these other ways that play on masculine stereotypes, some in sort of obvious hegemonic ways and then in other ways that are sort of playful and ironic. And so you see that play out in this corpus of cookbooks I looked at. So there's about 20 um, from sort of 1999 to 2019. So looking at this two decade period. Um, and so you see tons of meat, like that's obvious. Um, but you also see some really strange things, for example, in how the table of contents are organized. Um, like Men's Health First Cookbook, A Man, A Can, A Plan, um, was number one printed on these really thick cardboard pages, like a baby book. Um, so it wasn't like normal pages, um, which I always found hilarious. And then, you know, it's ingredient A plus ingredient B. So it also has this like textbook, you know, children's textbook kind of quality to it. Um, but it has a section for beer. It has a section for SpaghettiOs, it, you know, like this idea of sort of childlike foods that are a part of how the dude resists sort of adult responsibility. Um, there were other cookbooks for dudes that were oriented around sort of um, what are perceived to be, you know, masculine roles or masculine hobbies or masculine moments in your everyday life instead of by meals or ingredients. Um, and so in that way, the language that's used, how they're organized, um, the kinds of images that they include, um, dude food, uh, one of the ones that has that title uh, was written by an Australian personal trainer. Um, and throughout that book, there are these really interesting photos of bodies. Um, and so some of them are of him, right? And so he would fulfill that sort of stereotypical, um, you know, masculine body ideal being really fit and lean and muscular. Um, but there are also, you know, his friends are all throughout this book where they're surfing and they're at the beach and they're eating together. So all these homosocial moments of sort of dude kinship in this cookbook. And then the one image of a woman um, is a woman topless in bed laying on her tummy with you know a guy embracing her from you know over her back um, and it's in this section for you know dishes that you cook when you're on a date when you want to seduce a woman um, and or when you want to get out of the doghouse so that theme of using cooking as a man as a way to impress seduce bed uh, and then leave in most cases um, a woman like that's been in cookbooks you know for a hundred years and so sometimes this sort of analysis can be really depressing and that there's actually been quite limited progress in how masculinity and femininity are constructed in cookbooks and in culture writ large um, but I think the dude also has some um, space right for sort of humor and making fun of yourself and being able to open that door a little bit more to be able to cook in a way that doesn't have to have anything to do with your gender identity. But at the same time, I did see some really misogynistic um, content baked into that corpus of books as well. Yeah. So it seems like another one of those moments where uh, there's a little bit of breaking of those stereotypes, but as a whole, in the end, still kind of holding up the established status quo. Yeah, that is that is the sad part of the story. Yes. Yeah, you can cook at home, but you still have to be a caveman to do it. 
<laughs> yes, that caveman trope comes up over and over again. Thomas Keller, right, amazing award-winning chef, right, wrote the foreword for one of them. And he has to lean on that garbage to be able to talk about why everyday men should cook. Like, it's embarrassing, really, um, when you look at how a lot of these established professional chefs talk about cooking and recipes to everyday men. So the second chapter, and probably my favorite, uh, is a study of the phenomenon of Guy Fieri. Uh, He's a very polarizing figure, as you point out. um, But as we've all suspected, he's something of a marketing genius as well. Uh, So what makes him a dude and what's sort of appealing about his dudeness? So first, I'm so glad you liked this chapter. It was my favorite one to write. Um, I always <laughs> joked that maybe I should have just written a book about him because it was so much fun and I had so much to say. Um, but in thinking about how and why he's a dude, I look at the way that he resists not only definitions of normative masculinity, but also of how a food celebrity should act and how we define cuisine, that he sort of crosses these boundaries, resists them, blows everything up as he goes along in sort of these three different areas. And so in thinking about how he pushes back against masculinity, um, the most obvious, right, is looking at sort of his sartorial choices, right, (laughs) of how he does his hair and always wears tons of jewelry and he wears shorts and, you know, bowling shirts and he has, you know, a specific highly parodiable um, sort of sense of self that is quite different um, than the expectations, right, of professional dress for men or of how professional chefs sort of present themselves. And then similarly, as a food media star, um, the fact that he has all of these catchphrases and he has this populist ethos, the fact that he wasn't a, um, you know, sort of esteemed, you know, culinarily trained chef, um, that he came to all of this with a different set of expertises um, and sort of moves through it in very different ways. And then in analyzing the food that he cooks and that he promotes, um, he likes the weird and the funky and the over the top, right? Like he's taking us to Flavor Town. Um, He's not trying to take us somewhere that is codified and prescripted and perfect um that he loves the the weird and the outcast and the the folks who maybe wouldn't have a spotlight on them um there was a, a piece that i spun off out of the book that was looking at him you know specifically as a populist figure um and how he not only creates this sort of fusion hybrid out of bounds sort of cuisine um that in large part depends upon his privileges to be able to do um mm-hmm. but he's also writing a particular kind of americana um a specific definition of who and what America is um, and of American food um, that diners drives uh, drive-ins and dives um, gives us right a lot of different texts um, to think about how he's answering that question um, and so I think his his polarization is what I find interesting you know that I'm interested in him as a as a media phenomenon not as an actual person um, I find it so interesting that even after, or maybe especially after the zero star poor review that he receives the New York Times from Pete Wells, um, right, that is the most shared article from the New York Times for the entire year, um, that's written in all questions, right, that's meant to just utterly eviscerate him. Um, 
actually just reconstructs him as this populist good dude savior who was sort of unjustly targeted. Um, that a variety of men's magazines write profiles on Fieri after that happens, um, calling him, you know, the savior we need, the hero we need, the genius that you're not recognizing. Um, and that he's genuinely just this like good guy. Um, and so I loved tracing that discourse from like sort of that set of feature profiles to how he was written about, particularly during and after the California wildfires in 27 and 20, 2017 and 2018, um, when he is showing up in this sort of charitable position um, to be able to cook and feed um, first responders and people who've lost their homes. Um, and so thinking about how he's this good dude, right? He does good things. He resists these ideas when it comes to food and masculinity. But he's also like one step removed from being hugely invested in the politics of food. So if we think about how, you know, Jose Andres, right, with everything that he's done um, with World Food Kitchen, like a lot of the articles coming out at that time were comparing theory, right, to that sort um, of a philanthropic figure. But I argue that, you know, like the dude, he doesn't really step to that level of critique or full political engagement. He's just sort of the good guy. And so, um, you know, as I was doing the final, final edits, you know, COVID-19 was happening all around us. And so be able to say that he was certainly doing, you know, important, laudable work with the National Restaurant Association as well for the many food workers um, who were and still um, are out of work or without. Um, the support that they need, um, that he's again stepped up and used his um, platform for good. Uh, but there's always this, you know, degree um, of a sort of dudeness that goes along with that. Yeah, the next chapter uh, is also probably the one I'm most likely to assign to undergrads. Um, I think you really hit the accessibility of the prose throughout. But this one, uh, for years, one of the ways that I've introduced the idea of textual analysis and food studies to students is through yogurt ads. Uh, because they are so deeply gendered <laughs> and they spend absolutely no time talking about how yogurt actually tastes or anything like that. Uh, so what makes a manly yogurt or a manly doodly diet soda? <laughs> So I'm so glad that you also teach yogurts, right? For women and for men. It is a frustrating yeah. category when we think about it from this perspective. Um, and so yogurt, um, sort of before the mid-20-teens, really had been a food that had only been marketed to women in any invested way um, and, um, the, the, and had been conceived of as this sort of feminized food. So that's not true all over the world but it was in the United States at that time. And so this starts to shift with um, Greek yogurt with its higher protein content um, becoming more widely available in the United States, more and more brands having Greek yogurts. And so I write a little bit in another article about what I call the macronutrient imaginary. So how does protein come to symbolize ideas about gender and about wellness um, in these ways that are also tied up, um, you know, in sort of the globalized food system, ideas about food security, um, et cetera. And so the protein in yogurt was one big thing, right? Of how do you make this um, as a food for men? And so it's targeted differently, right? I'm not sure 
culture if you've used, you know, all those sad Yoplait ads for women, right? They're like, for us, <laughs> we're marketing <laughs> yogurt as like this really crummy substitute for dessert, right? Like they have flavors like key lime pie and cheesecake, um, but they're not, right? They're 100 calories of yogurt with aspartame in it. Um, and so for men, you'll see none of that discourse, right? That this is a, you know, a dessert substitute. They might still have sweet flavors, but like the naming conventions are even quite different. They're much more simple and sort of to the point. Um, and so for men, it was often marketed as this like perfect post-workout snack, in part because of the dairy industry um, as a whole, um, being able to go after that market. Market. So men's yogurts weren't really trying to compete with other yogurts. They were trying to compete um, with supplements, with things like muscle milk. So they were always really going to promote um, the protein content that was um, a part of what they were offering. And so I look at how every step of the marketing process is sort of tried to connote um, the strongest sense of masculinity to be able to um, fight that and thwart that idea of gender contamination, that yogurt was feminine. And then a lot of the advertising campaigns are where we see some of the um, sort of misogynistically humorous, but like dudish ironicness come in and how they were marketed. Um, so powerful yogurt is, you know, too easy to not talk about um, that they packaged their yogurt in a much larger container, eight ounces. It's gargantuan next to anything else you see in the yogurt aisle. That's a single serving. Um, it is a hard weight plastic. It is meant to feel hefty in your hand to signify masculinity. And then on the sides of every package are six pack abs molded <laughs> into the package. Um, and, you know, find your inner abs was their sort of initial ad campaign. So they had all sorts of, you know, desperately misogynistic um, sort of advertising in the beginning. You know, they had advertisements that were, um, you know, a woman in Daisy Dukes, you know, her truck breaks down and this guy shows up and he rips open his shirt and he's able to sort of put the jumper cables directly into his abs and like not only start the truck, but then like music starts playing and the girl starts dancing. And it's just, you know, awkward zooming in on her body, right? Like really awkward, horrible ads. Uh, when they launched at the Natural Foods Expo, they had a woman dressed up in a nurse's costume, like she was going to a Halloween party, um, using a ultrasound machine so that any man, right, could lay down and she could sort of show, right, the inner abs that are in all of us, right, if we would just um, eat this yogurt. Um, and so that's a brand that pivoted almost immediately to drop some of that because the yogurt actually tasted good. It was really popular with both male and female consumers. Um, but it's still so instructive to look at how yogurts attempted to market themselves when they were trying to go after men, thinking men might be hesitant to try their product. Yeah. And so what about the diet soda industry? It's similar, but takes a little bit of a different tactic. Yeah. So the protein in yogurts sort of protected them from that feminization. While diet sodas really had to push back against this idea um, that diet soda was just for women and that it was you know, related to diet. So part of it is this linguistic change, right? That I look at Coke Zero, um, which drops diet, right? At, in the language and in sort of how it's constructed. Um, and so I talk about this concept 
concept of zero as this masculine, empowered, you know, sort of full um, masculine idea of what diet is, right? That for men, it's zero. For women, diet is about the pursuit of lack and of nothingness and, you know, sort of artifice, while zero is this sort of empowered opposite of that. So we see that in how both the yogurts and the sodas are are marketed. But the other thing that was so fascinating in looking at Coke Zero and at Dr. Pepper 10, which actually had 10 calories, it was a low calorie soda, was that both companies go back into the lab to develop a new and different artificial sweetener when they want to target to men. Um, the ad, ex- you know, the brand executives for both companies said that men didn't want diet soda. They didn't like their imagery. They didn't like how they tasted, but they wanted lower calorie options for health reasons. And so there's this gendered assumption baked into that, that men need these real tasting sodas because their appetites and what they're used to eating just demand it. While women have been drinking since the 1950s, um, diet soda is a varyingly acrid flavor um, as we think about artificial sweeteners that really don't approximate sort of the mouthfeel and the actual taste and flavor of sugar. And so um, Coke Zero and Dr. Pepper 10 were initially, you know, very, very successful in part because they did taste better. Um, But that was specifically developed with the assumption that men would demand that. Yeah. Well, in the next chapter, kind of connecting those together uh, is about Weight Watchers and gender uh, and other sort of diets as well. Uh, So how are weight loss programs marketed differently to men? So this is part of what drove me crazy with Weight Watchers in that I was able to compare Weight Watchers Online for men versus Weight Watchers Online, which by default became the women's program, side by side right? That they're marketing the same tools, the same sort of features to men and women, but in desperately different ways. Um, And so for men, they were assuring them that they would be eating dude food, right? That yes, you will be eating French fries and burgers and uh, beer and pizza and tacos, like everything is on the menu. All you have to do is track what you eat and the weight is just going to, it's just going to fall off. Um, while with women, right, there's always these stories of transportation, of transformation, um, that the aspiration is not just about your body, but that once you've changed your body, you're cultivating this new, better self, you will be a better woman, a better mom, a better wife, right? Like everything is going to open up for you once you lose weight. And so... I actually see some interesting contradiction in the fact that I think it's totally psychologically protective, right? That men aren't given that message, right? Like dieting has fed so many desperately destructive messages to women. But at the same time, for men, there is no promise of transformation or the idea that um, focusing on your health, thinking about what you're eating, um, that that can be a part of sort of cultivating a sense of who you are and who you want to be, that all of that is sort of held as off limits um, of how the weight loss process um, is one that is still in these very hegemonically masculine heteronormative terms. 
Yeah, that part, especially the comparison of these two videos that are seem to be identical, uh, except for these very, very purposeful differences in imagery and language. And it got me fired up. Uh, so talk a little bit more about that kind of comparison, that difference in subtleties of losing weight versus getting in shape, or um, my weight versus the weight. Uh, talk a little bit some, about some of those differences in those videos. Yeah. So these were, you know, the how does it work videos for these programs. So they both used to be up on their websites at the same time. The win- the men's one was online for a lot longer than the women's one as the programs sort of change every year. Um, but f- to your first point, right, that they talk about weight and the weight loss process totally differently. Um, you know, that the woman, you know, talks about how, um, you know, she, you know, ate a lot of sort of tacos and fattening foods with a family from Texas, <laughs> you know, like that's where she grew up. Um, and that, you know, she needed to make a change and go on a journey. And, you know, you see her before picture next to her, you know, thin, transformed, reformed body afterward. Um, what, and so it's oriented towards herself, her emotions, her family. While for our guy, um, he says, you know, he was a sergeant in the military at risk for an honorable discharge because he couldn't meet the fitness requirements. And so his weight loss, which never shows a before body, um, is, a, is oriented towards the public sphere made to appear more legitimate um, as it's oriented around his performance in his career and then later on to his athletic performance, right, of training to run a marathon, um, that there are these, you know, achievements as expected of his body um, instead of sort of one that's about um, the interior of the self. Um, but to the food-based comparisons, right, like they um, they use the cheat sheets, right, of different foods to eat in totally different places and to eat totally different things. Like he goes to a bar and he has tacos and beer. She goes to a sit-down restaurant um, and is ordering like whole wheat pasta with broccoli florets and like a skinny cocktail. Um, they're using the barcode scanning tool on their phones to go to the grocery store. That's where she goes, right? She goes to this, um, you know, feminized space of the supermarket, um, again, to buy a healthy food, this box of whole wheat pasta, and she's seamlessly transported into her kitchen where she's using a variety of recipe tools to be able to make a healthy meal at home. While the man on Weight Watchers Online for Men um, uses the barcode scanner in a convenience store because he's busy and on the go, a man of the world, um, and he's, you know, buying a bag of chips again, right? Like he's tracking what he's eating, but he's making no changes, right? There's no expectations to restrain the appetite or to make any sort of healthy changes. And then when he cooks at home, he's outdoors, he's grilling, right? This um, expectation since the 50s and 60s that the grill, this patio daddio is this space for, you know, masculine food preparation. And he's not making, you know, whole wheat pasta, which like who wants to eat that all the time, but he's making his favorite food, a porterhouse steak outside, right? That, again, there's no sort of expectations that men, you know, are going to do anything that's hard um, or that you don't want to do, right? That, like dieting is hard <laughs> for any of us. Um, and then lastly, like the idea of um, they literally show the woman, you know, sitting at a computer, looking at all of the tools that are charting her weight loss and calculating all of the points. And, you know, she's seated as if at work, right? The labor of weight loss, the data produced in this process of weight loss versus the guy who who, you know, is never seated, you know, he's, you know, just a voiceover. And you hear him say, you know, all these, you know, tools, it's kind of like a video game. 
right? Like, it's, I'm just playing, right? Like, none of this is work. None of this is labor. So, you know, side by side, you can see these really different ways in how they conceive of weight loss and how they think about it as labor, as restraint, as effort, as freedom, um, and specifically through types of foods, food spaces, cooking, grilling, um, and, you know, these ideas about the body and if and why we want to change them, what that has to do with gender. And this can't be an accident, right? Because these two videos are so parallel that they seem to start from the same script and yet make these very purposeful choices to appeal to gender in such polarizing ways. Uh, Just it's not an accident or like a product of the water we're swimming in, right? These are choices. And that's, I think, what gets me going. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of the book might be rage-inducing, right? Like, yeah. A lot of ad campaigns where you're just like, are you kidding me? Um, so I tried to bring that to a hopeful space in the conclusion. Let's talk about those hopeful spaces because in the conclusion, you do note that a lot of these campaigns or, or products essentially failed or they walked back some of the more egregious campaigns um, or somehow kind of recognized some missteps and took different directions. Uh, so in what ways has the dude failed or receded as a marketing strategy? And why do you think that is? So you see in what's happened with each, with each of these sort of brand categories and these you know specific brands um, that they've either opened up the dude's access to everybody. So it's not exactly gender neutral, but it's like an inclusive dude. And then you've also seen shifts where there's no discussion of gender anymore, which for some products I actually think is the right way to go, right? Like just make a great product and market to everybody. Um, and so I do include um, a short discussion of White Claw um, as a hard seltzer that was very popular amongst a number of demographics, both men and women, um, and became, you know, sort of a social media and cultural phenomenon, um, that there was a mania around it, right? Big concerns, you know, that maybe there wouldn't be enough on the shelves and the idea of a white cloth summer. Um, And so that brand specifically took what they called a post-gender approach, um, but it is a a dude-inclusive approach at the same time. So I see it taking some sort of incremental steps forward, um, but you can actually still see some of the linkages to the dude and that their argument was that they wanted to extend um, the the friendliness of the casual hang, right, that everybody hangs out together. And so like this would be the drink of that casual hang for everyone. Um, and so in thinking about sort of the, the casualness and homosociality of the dude, um, that it's an opening up of that. Um, but to think about dieting, um, they actually, uh, Weight Watchers, for example, did extend that uh, sort of uh, zero idea, right, of empowered dieting, um, you know, a diet program with no limits or everything is on the program, um, that they did, you know, reconstruct the program, that that is what they are offering to all dieters, um, that it isn't so tied to these more traditional ideas of restraint and um, not being able to eat a lot of foods um, and so that was interesting to see, um, though that did happen at the same time that the company's stock prices fell hugely um, and is happening at a moment when dieting itself is finding itself um, culturally out of step 
um, as consumers are sort of shifting towards wellness. And so we know that that's just dieting by another name, um, but Weight Watchers and other commercial programs are having a hard time sort of navigating that cultural shift. Um, with Coke Zero, I was interested to see the brand um, rebrand. They didn't reformulate, but they did rebrand um, to Coke Zero Sugar. Um, that um, I talk about it in that chapter, but it's continued to be an issue that the the soda industry in the United States and around the world in many areas is in significant decline as consumer tastes change and as sort of concerns for health have you know, significantly shifted um, certain segments not drinking soda at all. And so renaming to say, you know, we have no sugar um, is still in a black can, right, which connoted masculinity in the beginning. But Diet Coke was maybe even more interesting that Diet Coke also didn't really reformulate, but rebranded just a couple of years ago. They had their first Super Bowl commercial that they had in like 20 years um, to also try and have this dude inclusive approach um, that like everybody, right, should be able to do whatever they want. (laughs) Um, And that Diet Coke could be this sort of millennial cool beverage instead of this like diet lady drink, which is how it had come to sort of be perceived. Um, and so in some ways, you know, you've seen the dude um, get spread out and uh, opened up to consumers. And in others, you've seen it um, sort of drop out. Uh, for example, in the men's health cookbooks, um, they go from a man, a can, a plan to Guy Gourmet, which came out for a more foodie sort of audience. And then the most recent one is a man, a pan, a plan, um, which is a bit of a tongue twister. Um, But it also sort of loses, um, for the better, um, a lot of this emphasis on gender. There's no mention of cavemen. Um, You know, all of that drops out. It's really just a cookbook um, that's meant to help you make, you know, one pan meals so you don't have a lot of cleanup. It's just, you know, a helpful cookbook. So what do you think is the future of the dude? So if it emerged as kind of a response to the Great Recession, are we still in a cultural moment of gender crisis uh, with those anxieties about gender contamination? Um, Have we moved kind of to post-gender? If you, I don't know how I feel about that, but like, (laughs) is that the move going forward? Uh, Or is some version of the dude here to stay, do you think? So I think the dude um, had a moment. (laughs) And so uh, I think I track him, you know, sort of from uh, 2005 at the beginnings. And then he definitely expands during the recession. But then there are still, you know, plenty of examples in the book that are from 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, even 2019. So he's not gone. Mm -hmm. But I think in the He's in. He's representing a different form of reaction, right? He was always reactionary to social conditions, um, and so post twenty sixteen, he's resonating in an environment where Donald Trump is somehow president, um, and you know, it um, brings a wave of toxic masculinity um, along with right overt racism and hate crimes. And so the dude, 
I argue, sort of loses the footing that he had at that moment as this new big wave of challenges happens. So we see the transitions to um, the all-inclusive dude branding or the dude falling out. So I don't think he's totally gone. Um, but I guess I'm not particularly invested in whether he's with us forever. Like, I don't think he really did anything for very many people. Um, but I do think he provides a powerful and hopefully compelling and maybe a little bit funny and, you know, engaging window into how we construct gender in particular ways, um, particularly in advertising and in the consumer culture, to be able to understand how and why food remains such an anxious arena. Um, and to be able to see, you know, what little bits of change have there been. Um, and so I think part of why the dude fell so out of step um, was, you know, we certainly haven't had, you know, the transgender tipping point that was predicted in Time magazine, but we have had some changes on a big cultural level um, and how we think about, you know, they being sort of the word of the year across multiple spaces in seeing how there have been, um, you know, some shifts finally, right, in political legislation in you know, um, transgender rights. Um, and so in a world where gender was never this like binary masculine feminine thing um we're in a moment where like the 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 huge limitations of the dude and of so much gender targeted marketing is just desperately apparent Mm -hmm. like he shows how and why we have to be able to move forward to imagine identity in more inclusive empowering ways You write a lot on your blog about teaching. Uh, So I'm curious about how the material of this book fits into things that you bring to perhaps undergraduate students. How do students respond to these conversations? So I had the joy when I was getting my PhD to teach my own class. And so I taught food and gender and U.S. popular culture. And so that was basically teaching the bibliography of my book, (laughs) um, which was so much fun. And so in some of their, um, you know, assignments, they got to bring in case studies and examples. And so it was affirming and also so fun, right, when they would bring in the same things um, like diet sodas and yogurts. And, you know, I have this bizarre collection of men's cookbooks and so some of them would work with those texts. Um, In my advertising class, we definitely talk a ton about how advertising shapes and reflects our notions of identity. Um, What are the potential, right? There are no transgressive examples, basically, right? Like that's not really what advertising does, but maybe it could. Um, Where are the potentially progressive ones? And then where are these regressive ones? And so a lot of the examples in my book are ones I can bring in um, to show where, ads, even those created by really incredible award-winning agencies, right, have fallen short. Um, In my pop culture class, we're also thinking about identity, power, access, justice. And so a lot of these examples are ones that students um, can resonate with and think with. Um, I think I've been, you know, pretty public in sort of living my life on social media. And so I do have, you know, a lovely number of students who follow along. And so it's been like unbelievably special to have students excited that my book's coming out, to have them pre-order it, um, to be able to share that, you know, the joy that is a book (laughs) um, with students who come to it from such a different place. Um, That's, that's been so wonderful. Well, what other projects are you working on right now? 
So with my friend and colleague here at TU, um, Zenya Kish, we co-edited a book on food Instagram. Um, so that is all zipped up and going through review at a press. So we're really hopeful and excited for the next steps for that one. So that one's tentatively titled Food Instagram Identity, Influence, and Resistance. Um, so a book really working to bring food studies and media studies into like really vigorous conversation um, and to really seriously theorize, analyze, and think about um, this specific genre of food Instagram. Um, so we've got that going. Um, I just finished a chapter on the photo essay, um, Women Laughing Alone with Salad, <laughs> which is in the hairpin. Um, I've always wanted to write about it. So this is finally the, you know, the right essay collection. And so I just finished that. Um, I think I'm going to work on a piece on Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. Um, that was a part of this manuscript, but it just didn't kind of work in the book. So it's separate um, and thinking about how even though people maybe don't know that funny little parody book, we still know that phrase, mm -hmm. right? Of like real men don't eat quiche and sort of this idea of um, dominant definitions of manhood still being linked to specific ways of eating. Um, but it's a fascinating, weird little book, even if it's intended as a joke. Um, and so there was a really great book called Gaming Masculinity, um, where the author comes up with this concept that she calls bro's law, which is the idea that even if um, you know, a lot of the ads I looked at, right? Like, are they tongue in cheek? Are they just jokes, right? Am I being a humorless feminist, mm. right? And even <laughs> analyzing them. And the argument that she makes is that in a moment so rife with popular misogyny, popular misogyny um, and toxic masculinity, um, that it's quite blurry where the distinction is between just a joke um, and the actual lived reality um, of being a woman or a woman identified person um, in this moment. In the United States. And so I think that applies, right? Like it was written as satire, but it hit a raw and real nerve um, because so much of it rang true. Um, and it inspired a bunch of sequels, including a cookbook. Um, so there's, there's some really interesting stuff going on there. Um, and then I'm also working on a chapter on um, food and food politics in the 2020 uh, presidential election, um, a sort of the long campaign trail, right, where we had 20 plus um, you know, Democratic candidates. It was our most sort of diverse pool ever um, in really thinking about how we see the dynamics of celebrity politics, um, the reconfiguration of the presidency um, through not only what they ate, but hopefully the food politics and policy that they put forth. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm, that I'm working on now. Ooh, busy. <laughs> so today we've been talking to Emily Contois about her book, Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture, uh, out now from University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much, Emily, for talking to me today. The thanks are mine. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you for listening.